Uh, Would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you that you are a God who speaks to your people, who speaks to your world, not in, um, not in cryptic codes or uh, through mystery um, handshakes or <laughs> secret knowledge, but you do it through your word and you do it through your people and you did it through your son who became flesh and dwelt among us and showed us in life what you were like. And as we dive into your word and what it means as, as being central in our worship together, I pray that we wouldn't just talk about your word, but that it would, it would penetrate our hearts and, and that you would speak to each one here as they need to be spoken to, Lord. That is so amazing how you do that, Holy Spirit. And help us, Spirit of God, to be open in our heads and in our hearts uh, to what it is you're doing in us today. We surrender to you. Amen. In 1996, I had the opportunity to join some of my Coast Guard shipmates to the Marine Firefighting Academy in North Bend, Washington. It's an intense experience fighting a fire, ask Jeff Milston, he, he could tell you that. A- and uh, there's a lot of forces working against you when you are fighting a fire, uh, especially when you're fighting a fire at sea, because there's like nowhere to run, where are you going to go, into the ocean, right? Like you have to get the fire out or jump into a raft or something. So it's kind of intense. And one of the common refrains in marine firefighting, and I don't know, maybe regular firefighting too, is like, know where you are at, because it is easy to get lost. Uh, Like in some of these ships I was on, there's several decks down, and then it gets dark, and you just have these little emergency lights. You've got this foggy mask and bulky suit on that, you know, Coasties, we don't wear firefighting stuff every day. Like, it's, a, so it's something emergency and stressful. Uh, and you get a few decks down and around some corners, and it's easy to get lost. And you've got to know where you are at. In fact, before you're even allowed to sleep on a Coast Guard ship, a Coast Guard cutter, uh, you have to do a whole drawing of the ship, every deck of the ship, and then you have to go to your berthing area where you sleep and your main workspaces where you would be working and be blindfolded and escape without bonking your head on a steel door. You've got to know how to get out blindfolded. It's harder than you might think. I think sometimes reading the Bible is like that. You dig deeper and deeper into scripture and you can easily lose touch with the broader story and how what you're reading connects with the rest of the Bible. So let's take a moment in this sermon series that we're in and just ask ourselves the question, where are we? For the past several weeks, we've been rooted in the story of the exodus from Egypt. It's an amazing story where God's people have been enslaved by a xenophobic, nationalistic pharaoh of Egypt. And for nearly 400 years, the Hebrew people toiled under increasingly hard labor. At different points in this history, the Egyptians even uh, enacted policies like killing all of the firstborn male children of the Israelites so that they could try and wipe out the family names of these people. But the harder the Egyptians tried, the more the Hebrew people thrived. And the story tells us that God is behind all of this. It almost, it totally doesn't make sense from an earthly point of view. Pharaoh tries harder to oppress and to kill them, and they just keep multiplying and having more babies, and like, they're outnumbering everybody. And so the Hebrews multiplied, their numbers grew, and with their numbers, their cries to heaven grew. 
until one day, a most unassuming, stuttering, murderous exile named Moses was chosen by God to be the leader of the Hebrews, the one who would lead them out of slavery from Pharaoh and into a relationship with Yahweh, the living God of the universe. Through confrontation and miraculous plagues, Yahweh, through Moses, convinced Pharaoh to let the people go. This freedom movement of Exodus was short-lived, though, because soon after the people leave with all this bounty and all this gold and precious stuff from Egypt, the Pharaoh, like, I must have lost my mind. Let's go get those people back. And so he gets all of his chariots and all of his army, and he starts to chase them down. And the Israelites find themselves facing death from spears and swords on one side and death by water in the Red Sea on the other, right? And so this is where God splits the sea in two. The Israelites pass through on dry land. The Egyptians try to follow, and God allows the waters to swallow them up. And these freed slaves, these exiles, become Israel. And over the next 40 years, God would train them to be, in his dream, his priests. So that they could represent God to all the nations they would encounter. And the world would come to know God. Having lived in pagan Egypt for centuries, Israel had a lot to learn about what it meant to be free and to be God's people. So what did God do? How would he train these people? Did he set up a distance learning course? No, he did not do that. Did he write a manual and just drop it in their lap? No, we we don't have that manual. I don't think he did it that way. Did he create instructional videos that you could buy for four installments of $29.99? He did not do that either. What he does, what he does first is he enters into a relationship with his people. The fancy word for that in the Bible is called the covenant. And he reminds these people that he is the same God from their ancestors, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all those kids. And, and the covenant he made with those patriarchs, he was reaffirming and even upping the ante with these people. And instead of mere instruction manuals or classes, Yahweh instructs the people in their worship. Isn't that interesting? Rather than giving them lists of things to do and not do, the first thing God does is he wants to inform them how to worship. Why? Because you become like that which you worship. Whether it's a thing or a person, you will become like that which you worship. So we've been discovering that these passages particularly Exodus 24 through 40 have a lot to say about worship. And even though these passages, let's be honest, they contain an agonizingly detailed amount of instructions uh, about how to create the tabernacle and all of this stuff, they also contain and communicate so much good news that still informs our worship even in Bellingham in the 21st century. We've discovered that God is gracious and provides a sacred space where people could meet with him. And that space in the Exodus narrative is this tabernacle or tent of meeting. For a people, think about this, wandering in the desert without a homeland of their own, this is a portable temple that can go where they go. And whenever they set it up, when they've stopped for the night or a week or a few weeks, they know that they can meet with God in that space. And so the tabernacle is a gift 
a foreshadowing of, of what's to come. It pointed to the day that we know about when Jesus would come and, John says, tabernacle among us. The day that God himself became flesh and dwelt among human beings. And when he did that, his actions declared all spaces holy. Isn't that beautiful? So that now, it's not uncommon for you to talk to Jesus or to God in your living room, in your pajamas with the Bible and a cup of coffee. And it's not uncommon for you to be on a hike at Skyline Divide or some of the many amazing hikes we have around here and just be like, ah, and praise and worship God right there. He's there. He's there with you. And, we, and that's, that's not even like a, a brain stretch for many of us. We're accustomed to this way of thinking. Because Jesus has holified everything and we can connect with God anywhere. And yet, in his graciousness, God understands that we're people of stuff and physical and we get distracted. And so, the Jews, uh, after the second temple and then the Christians, we've created spaces set aside specifically for worship. In fact, you're, you're in one of them now. This is a sanctuary where it, it, it's set aside worshiping God in a way that that room is just as holy. God just is there. In fact, I kind of like food better than this part of worship, but <laughs> but this is, this is the sanctuary where we do this kind of stuff. It's set aside for him. I, as we continue in this lesson on worship in Exodus, we, we learn that it's not just about the structure of the tabernacle itself, but it's also about the things inside the tabernacle, the sacred art Elements crafted out of precious metals and, and stones and, and fine wood and rare materials. Each piece was beautiful, but it also had a special meaning. The golden lampstand, this candelabra, had seven lamps on it, representing the tree of life in the Garden of Eden and the seven celestial bodies that the ancient people could see with the naked eye. The table of showbread, containing 12 loaves for the 12 tribes of Israel, as if saying that God is a God of hospitality, that in his temple he has a table set for the people of God to come and to dwell with him. And in the, in the tabernacle in the Holy of Holies, of course, is the Ark of the Covenant with the tablets of the covenant inside, a visible reminder of God's presence and his faithfulness in relationship. And all of these symbols are acts of grace toward Israel from God. And they also, each one pointed toward Jesus. Today we don't have a table of showbread or an altar of incense or a Ark of the Covenant. Uh, I think everybody, or nobody knows where it is, not even Indiana Jones. But we do have important <laughs> symbols uh, that communicate things. You know, for example, we have a Christ candle. And there's nothing magic about this. Oh, you guys can't see the music stand. Here it is. Um, yeah, th this is a reminder this, this is the first thing I do when I come into the sanctuary at about three in the afternoons. I light the Christ candle, or somebody does. Um, Jesus is always here when the candle's not lit, but it reminds us that his light, his presence is here with us. Um, and I think this is beautiful. Gary Moore turned this in his woodshop at home. And so we have our own sacred art that communicates beauty and truth, the truth that Jesus is with us. We have... On this table up here, we have three candles, obvious link to the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. On this table, we have not only the Bible, but what's called the St. John's Bible, created by uh, some monks in a monastery at St. John's Monastery. I think it's in Minnesota, and uh, this is a replica, of course, but it's similar to the Book of Kells in that 
They, they hand wrote everything in calligraphy and there's fine art pieces on many of the pages. And that tells us that not only is the word of God, uh, it's just, it's beautiful, it's, it's, it's life-giving. On the communion table, we don't have showbread anymore, but we have the wine and, and the bread, the body and the blood of Christ. We have five candles, the Trinity and the two natures of Christ, divine and human. So whenever you see those stylized pictures of Jesus going like this, or sometimes he goes like this depending on the artist, three, the, the Trinity and the two natures of Christ is what that's referring to. So we have these symbols and more in our sanctuary um, under this is a baptismal font. They just covered that up. I think they're going to do a play here. Um, but some churches have a, a font when you come in the door. Uh, we just have the, the hole there that we fill up when we need it. But these reminds us uh, of, of the waters of baptism that we have been invited to die with Christ and we're raised to walk in new life. So as we're getting our bearings in this Exodus story, um, we also learn that sacrifices are required in worship. Offerings to atone for sin before people could approach this holy God. And, and sacrifices of grain and first fruits to help support the priests and ministry. And fellowship offerings, shalom offerings. One of the offerings presented in worship even back in the tabernacle were, were meats and grains where people would actually cook them on the altars and barbecue. And they would eat them together. And they would reconcile their differences. And one of the, the nods of the hat to that is why we eat together every week after what we do in this room. These sacrifices remind us that sinful humans aren't able to approach God without first atoning for their sin. A and, and they remind us that there's grace that God provided a way for us to come near. Uh, after all, think about this, there, there is no animal sacrifice that could really atone for human sin. If anything, these sacrifices reminded the people of the cost of their sin, but they were always pointing to something more. Animal sacrifice was never the answer to the problem that we have as, as fallen humans. And in Christian worship, we recognize that Jesus is the only one who could atone for our sin, which is why that symbol is so important. Which, by the way, that was created um, from a man who has now passed on, but he was a member of Fountain Community Church who's building this. So this has um, uh, personal resonance with, with the community as well. So, who knew, right, so far that in this review that there's so much good news in these tedious tabernacle instructions. And I, I hope that this review has helped you at least get a sense of perspective for where we are in the sermon series. Because at this point, I want to advance the conversation. And I want to look beyond what the tabernacle was made of and observe the content of the worship in the tabernacle. We've already talked about sacrifice that takes place there. And in the weeks to come, we're going to consider things like psalms and songs and prayers and poetry. We're going to do that next week. And in a few more weeks, we're going to look at sacred rhythm, sacred time, and the way that, that in the tabernacle, they, they mark time with the festivals. And as the church, we mark time with the Christian calendar. And we'll, we'll do those things in the weeks to come. But this evening, I want to focus on the way that the Word of God the sacred story was central to Israelite worship and is central to Christian worship. 
everybody loves a good story. Don't let me be wrong. Yeah, we all love a good story. Uh, I remember the first time uh, I was a young man and I watched The Princess Bride, right? I mean, it just has everything and it's actually a story within a story where, you know, Fred Savage, the kid, he's sick and he's getting told a story by the old man and then it's the movie. Oh, it's so great. And, and in this amazing story, we, we have adventure and true love and friendship and suffering and redemption and good and evil and a nice dose of humor and irony and it's all there. What a great story. And every culture has its stories, whether sung or written or an oral tradition. Human beings tell stories, and we've always told stories. And isn't it awesome that when God wants to communicate with people, he does it in a story? Thank you, God. Uh, Now, scholars are quick to point out that the Bible is made up of 66 books written in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, and that these 66 books cover a range of genres from poetry and history and Proverbs to narrative and biography and prophecy and apocalypse. And the Bible covers an unknown amount of time from the creation of the world as we know it to the first century A.D., And it was written by many different authors in many different settings. And yet, when taken as a whole from Genesis to Revelation, the Bible tells one sacred story. Now, Exodus tells us a lot about the design of the tabernacle and the things inside it. But we actually don't learn about the word of God being central to their worship in Exodus. We learn about that from Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. And those books, also written during the time of Moses and during the time of tabernacle worship, are instructions from God about the sacred story. When the people of God gather for worship, they tell the story of God. Now, why would they do that? Why do you think that God would establish that way back in the tabernacle, confirm it, and magnify it in the temple, bring it to the fore in the prophets. Jesus would do this when he taught. Jesus would teach from the scriptures. You notice that? Jesus rarely says anything new that's not related, or at least saying I'm fulfilling the scripture, or I'm riffing like a a jazz artist on the scripture, but he's rooted in the scripture. And Paul's all rooted in the scripture. So why would that be? For note takers now, I know this has been a little ambiguous, and where's he going with all this? Five reasons. You can write one, two, three, four, five in your notes if you like. Um, Not counting because God said so. That could be the bonus question, the sixth reason, or 1A if you like. Uh, Because God said so. That's that's a good reason, but I, I think that the first reason why the word is central, why the sacred story is central, um, is that it reveals the nature and character of God. Listen, everybody worships. Atheists worship. Everybody worships. And in the ancient world, people saw the creation. They saw the sun and the moon and the stars. They saw stunningly beautiful and at the same time dangerous oceans. And what do you do with all of that? They had to make sense of these majestic mountains and lush valleys and all the variations in wildlife and plants. They had to put all that praise and awe and wonder somewhere. And so they wrote stories and they sang songs and they gave praise and they gave honor and credit to someone or something or some things 
outside of themselves. I don't, I've not heard of a culture yet who declares, look what we did. Like, that's just not, I have not heard in anthropology classes or anything, any human culture that says, we made the heavens and the earth. Hasn't happened yet. So what, what we believe with scripture, with the sacred story, is that the actual maker of heaven and earth, the designer of all this beauty and power and creativity and diversity, Whistler Blackcomb, oh, Andrew was flying in a helicopter over that. I saw your pictures on Facebook, buddy. Oh, amazing. What we find is that while creation is good in this sacred story, it's only holy because he made it and declared it holy. And while the creation is powerful and unpredictable, it is under God's sovereign rule. And while it is beautiful and should be cared for, it is because it is the temple of God. And the scripture tells us that God is not just this anonymous creator or unapproachable deity, but he is Yahweh. That means he has a name. And he is revealed as a father to us. A good, good father like the song we just sang. And this good father calls us into relationship and forgives his people. And this father God is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. And he's jealous for our affection. And he spares no expense to win us back even when we sell ourselves into slavery, no matter what it is. He wins us back. So full is his grace in the sacred story that he became flesh in the person of Jesus and died in our place. So powerful is his love that he defeated death and offers us new life. So serious is his view of us as his image bearers that he sent the Holy Spirit to dwell in all who believe in Jesus and have been baptized into the church of Jesus. No wonder he wants us to read the sacred story, to declare the sacred story, to sing about the sacred story, to pray out of the sacred story every time we gather for worship because it tells us all about who he is and who we are, right? But there's more to it than that. Of course, because I said there was five things and I'm going to name one. But the second reason why we tell the sacred story in worship is because it's not just a story. It's the word of God. You know, in honor of the 500th Reformation of, uh, or anniversary of the Reformation this year, I've read three biographies on Martin Luther, two theological uh, overviews of his theology, and, and several more of his works that I hadn't read before. Uh, I'm getting to know quite a bit about Luther. One might even say, as they do in the UK, I've read Luther. And I can see ways that his thought and teachings and courage have influenced the world for the better. But not everything about Luther is good or right, and some of it's downright deplorable. But we don't expect a human being's life or writings to be uh, authoritative or inspired or living. But that's not the case with Scripture. With Scripture, we recognize that these books of the Bible were written by flawed humans in specific cultural, historical settings, in particular languages. But we've also come to believe that somehow the Holy Spirit has superintended this process from the writing 
to the collection, to the preservation, to the canonization, to us. And that somehow these writings don't just tell us about God, but they are, in, in some sense, his very word. And because they are his word, his story, they are performative. That, that, that's a key difference that's very important. They're not just informative, these stories of God. They're, they're performative. The prophet Isaiah says about the word of God that unlike grass and flowers that wither and die, the scriptures endure forever. That scripture, when it's proclaimed, doesn't return void. That when we proclaim the word of God, something happens, even if you don't feel it all the time. We're, we're a little bit too, I think, dependent on how we feel about things in the West, and feelings are good and important. Uh, someone once said that, that feelings are wonderful servants, but they're horrible masters, right? And so um, we don't always feel something change inside of us when someone preaches the word, but it's, I, I'm aware that, that you coming here in some ways is an occupational hazard, that it's dangerous to some degree, to submit yourself to the word because you don't know how it's going to get in there and mess with you. And God might call you to change something, but he might also set you free from something. Uh, this leads us to the third reason the sacred story is central in biblical worship. One of the things that happens when the word is proclaimed is that it convicts us of sin. Sin separates us from God. Not because he's too good for us and he just needs to wait. He's going to wait until we get it right and then we can finally come to him. On the contrary, sin causes you and I to forsake God, to choose other things and other people instead of him. That's maybe one of the definitions of sin itself, is when I choose other things or other people instead of God. Sin separates us from God. And it, and it makes us feel ashamed, damaged, unworthy. It breaks trust, and that means that relationship has to be restored. You know, when Peter preaches his sermon in Acts chapter 2, based on the word of God, the crowds, it says, were cut to the quick, and they wanted to know how to respond in order to be made right with God. The author to the Hebrews writes, the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division between soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. In other words, the sacred story has a way of penetrating our most elaborate defenses. It unmasks our false selves, our delusions of I'm okay, you're okay. The story has a way of showing us how life in God's world was intended, and it shows us that we're kind of far from the way he intended. Which leads us to the fourth reason we tell the sacred story in worship. Because just convicting us is not the end of the story. Conviction is a grace from God when it's coupled with grace and forgiveness. The sacred story starts with a very good creation, and it ends with a very amazing recreation. And in between these bookends, we're faced with the reality of our sin, but also with the ferocity of God's grace. God's grace in making a covenant 
after covenant with the rebellious people, God's grace in taking the world's sin and debt on himself, God's grace in Jesus. And, and what I love about this is that his grace isn't just about forgiveness and new life someday. It's also about how we live now as followers of Jesus. Schoon read earlier from 2 Timothy 3, 16, which says, All scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching and reproof for correction and training and righteousness so that the person of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. See, the sacred story informs our ethics. The prophets, for example, will say things like, Hey, Israel. I mean, the colloquial prophet. They lost that version. They say, hey, Israel, remember that you used to be slaves in Egypt. And then God, out of no merit of your own, rescued you. And then for a long time, you were foreigners in a foreign land. And everybody else around you spoke a different language and worshiped different gods. And remember how that felt? And now that you're established, how should you treat the immigrant and the foreigner and the person with a different language and a religion who comes into your land? So the prophets will say these types of things over and over to Israel. It's using uh, the story of the sacred story and, and building ethics off of that. It matters for how we live. And Jesus will riff off of these laws uh, and will call us to the heart behind the law. So he'll say things like, um, you've heard that it was said you shall not murder. Well, good for you. You didn't murder anyone this week. But I see how you're looking at your husband or wife or your son or daughter or your neighbor across the street. And your face reveals contempt for them. And so I say to you that everyone who's angry with their brother or sister shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says you good for nothing shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says raka, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. So Jesus is getting behind the letter and getting to the heart. And he does this with all kinds of things. Oh, good for you. You didn't commit adultery. You're following the law. But when you lust, when you objectify someone else for your own sexual pleasure, you're committing adultery of the heart. You know, so, so Jesus is getting to the ethics of what it means, what the sacred story is getting at. Uh, Paul will say that you were bought with a price, your life is not your own. You've been made new in Christ. You are a new creation. Live into the reality of who you are. And so, the story shows us a way of grace, the grace to be made new, and the grace to live a new life. And this naturally concludes with the fifth reason, the word is central to worship. Because just as Jesus embodied the word of God himself, so his people are now to live out that word as well. You know, in Luke's gospel, when Jesus goes into the synagogue to worship, he preaches from the sacred story. Now, don't miss how significant that is, because Jesus is the author of the story. The word of God, synonymous with the word of Jesus. And in the story or I'm sorry, Jesus could have said something like entirely new. He gets up to preach. He's this new upstart rabbi. Uh, he's in front of the synagogue. He could have said something super creative and wise. I'm sure it would have blown everybody away. But rather than do that, Jesus begins with Isaiah the prophet, at least in Luke's gospel, and he declares it, and then he declares it fulfilled. And so what Jesus is doing is he's showing 
He's validating the sacred story. There's not like, oh, Jesus is here. Now we can throw out most of the Bible. No, that God is the same God. But what we're seeing is that Jesus is the, the, the one that all of that is pointing to. So he, he fulfills it. He embodies it. And in a similar way, those of us who have believed in the story and put our faith in Jesus, we're called to embody that story as well. And I would venture to guess that anyone here who follows Jesus or uh, is here at all probably had some kind of help getting here or following Jesus. What I mean is that most of us not only believe because of what the Bible said or even what a talking head like me has preached about. I mean, that, I hope that's helpful. But most of us have had help in bodied people, like people who have modeled faith, people who you've seen their lives actually different because they are followers of Jesus too. Isn't that the case for most of us? It's the case for me. It's one thing to talk about grace and to hear about grace, but it's another thing to be extended grace by my wife on a regular basis, by other people who are walking with the Lord, that's an embodied apologetic, an embodied witness to the world about who Jesus is, about this sacred text. And that's what you and I are graciously, graciously invited into. Let's pray. Lord, on a selfish point, I thank you that you didn't just download us a manual, that you gave us some pretty amazing stories. <laughs> Most of them are quite entertaining, if not a little strange. I'm thankful for the diversity of the scriptures, God, knowing the diversity of a congregation like this one, where we have poets among us, and we have teachers among us, and we have historians among us, um, and Lord, there's a genre for everyone in Scripture that can connect. And I also thank you that all of these genres and books and authors that you, you've brought them together to tell one story about you and your son and about how we fit into all of this. I pray that you would release faith in us to trust in the hero of the story, Lord Jesus, that's you. I pray, Lord, for the grace for my sisters and brothers and I to find our place in the story. I pray specifically for those who are here this evening who feel like they're listless, that they're floating out at sea without a sail or a rudder. That they're not sure, Lord, um, about what they're doing in life. And they feel maybe more like life is happening to them than they're living it at all. And I pray for the grace of you revealing yourself in the midst of that discomfort, in the midst of that chaos, in the midst of the unknowing. Show us, Lord, how we're grafted in to this amazing sacred story. Bless you, Lord. Help us to trust you. Amen.